Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter, one, to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to, so I was talking to uh, Emmanuel. And uh, I told him I'm Hispanic, so this needs to be on the stand so I can use my hands, because if not, I don't express myself well enough. Um, yeah, so our, our text this morning in Matthew, can you guys all hear me well? Okay, great. Uh, found in Matthew, I'm sure you guys are all thinking, man, what a, what a text. And, and hopefully by the end of, uh, hopefully by the end of this morning, uh, uh, we might see maybe what it text for something different than how you perceived it this morning when we first read it. But before I get there, uh, my wife and I and a group of people from our church, we do a ministry in downtown Framingham. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Framingham, but we do a ministry with kids in the apartment complex where we grew up, where I grew up. Um, and we've been going through the parables of Jesus and, and a simple sort of reminder of what the parables teach. We tell the kids is, parables teach about the king, Jesus, about the kingdom, and then the people of the kingdom. The king, the kingdom, and then the people of the kingdom. And today, this text in Matthew is all about the kingdom. Matthew actually in the gospel talks about the kingdom over 50 times. Sometimes it's the kingdom of God, sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven, but our text Actually, if you have a, a, at some point to today, if you start in chapter 18 all the way through 19, it's all about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So we're right in the middle of Jesus discussing the kingdom. So this is just the context of our text. So we are going to talk about the cost of entering the kingdom and those who are willing to pay the cost to enter into the kingdom. But before we jump into our text, I wonder if you guys remember the Klondike Bar commercials. You guys remember what would you do for Klondike Bar? That's right, the jingle. I'm like, am I going to sing it? Am I not? I'm not as good as those who led us in worship, so I'm not going to sing it. But uh, I went back, and like anybody does when you're researching something, right? Like you just go on YouTube, right? And uh, I just went back, and I was like, what were the commercials? And here were some of the things that people would do for a Klondike bar commercials, uh, for the Klondike bar. Uh, so some, uh, some would, uh, would put away their dishes. A husband put away their, his dirty dishes for a Klondike bar. Uh, a grown man waxed his chest hair for a Klondike bar. Um, uh, some people pretended to be chickens for a Klondike bar. Uh, here's the best one that I, I thought I found was two grown bodybuilders, like think Arnold Schwarzenegger, like played patty cake for a Klondike bar, okay? And, and then the last one was uh, professionals outside of their office buildings pretended to be monkeys for a Klondike bar. So what do we learn from, from these commercials? Uh, we learn that Americans are willing to do just about anything for ice cream. We really love our ice cream. 
But this text is actually calling us to a similar question, but different, distinct. It's calling us, what would we do to enter into the kingdom? What are we willing to pay? What are we willing to count the cost to enter into the kingdom? Better yet, the question is, what is Jesus asking us to do to enter into the kingdom? So I know we just read the text, but I just, it's three verses. I just want to read it again for us. It says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So for us to understand rightly our text, I'm going to lay down some foundational truths that we need if we're going to rightly study our text. And the first one is just a definition. So I'm going to talk about sanctification or holiness today. And sometimes we use sort of these Christian words and we never really define them. So I want to first give you a definition as I use what the word sanctification or holiness is throughout our sermon so my, my definition of holiness would be holiness or sanctification is the Holy Spirit wrought, meaning worked out, manifestation of Christ's righteousness in a believer's internal, meaning his thoughts and desires, and external words and actions, life unto the glory of God. So if you didn't catch it, I'll read it one more time. Holiness is the Holy Spirit wrought, manifestation of Christ's righteousness in a believer's internal and external life unto the glory of God. Now, if you're like my wife, you're like, Egardo, you are using way too many words for one definition. So here, I'm going to try to give us a simpler definition. Holiness is the progressive work of the Spirit in conforming our whole being, head, heart, and hands, into the image of Christ. Holiness is the progressive work of the Holy Spirit in conforming our whole being into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's our definition of holiness today. We're going to move, we're going to use that definition. And here are other, so five rules that are extremely important if we're going to understand our text rightly. So here is your first rule. We have to understand that holiness or sanctification is the work of our triune God. It first starts with God. The Bible actually says God sanctifies us in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is the work of our triune God. Second rule, we must positionally be in Christ to progressively grow into the image of Christ. We must positionally be in Christ to progressively grow into the image of Christ, meaning we must be justified first before we can be sanctified. Third rule, we must be spirit-empowered and humanly driven unto holiness. So, so what this means is that there is a working of the Holy Spirit in us to lead us unto holiness, and yet we are not passive recipients in that. We work it out. Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who is working in you. 
So there is this duality that we are responsible, and yet we are Holy Spirit empowered to kill and walk and kill sin and walk in holiness. Fourth rule. Uh, so, so, uh, that was the fourth rule. Fifth rule. Uh, sorry, the third rule. I skipped it. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. So that's really important for us. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And then the last rule is we must strive for holiness, not for the sake of union with Christ, but for the sake of communion with Christ. So here, let me give you an illustration. If you are married, you cannot be more or less married. You are just married. You, yeah, you, it's, it's like, or, or even like, like if you are pregnant, you can't be more or less pregnant. You just are pregnant. Like, now you can grow in your pregnancy. You can grow in your relationship with your spouse. But if you are married, you are just married. And if we are in Christ, we have been united to Christ. However, our sanctification will grow our relationship with Christ, will grow our communion with Christ. So the ultimate aim for sanctification is our communion, our relationship with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So we have a definition. We have our rules that are going to ground, as, ground us as we look at our text. So now let's look at our text. So verse 7, we read, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. The first thing we learn is we learn what is the enemy of holiness. What is the enemy of holiness? And we're told that this enemy is sin or the temptations to sin. And the Lord Jesus not only tells us what the enemy is, he actually diagnoses what this enemy is all about. We learn three things about our enemy. The first thing that we learn about our enemy is that this enemy is external to us. Did you guys catch that? It is external. It is of the world. And it is of someone else who is coming and tempting us. And this was really key for me. Uh, about almost three years ago in October, I, uh, I just went through a period of time where I just needed counseling. I needed someone to walk me through, just through a, a tough season of my life. And this brother just brought me to this text to Matthew 18, and he made, he allowed me to see the distinction between these temptations, that there are external temptations, but that there are also internal temptations. So look at what J James chapter 1 verse 13 through 15. You guys are in James, I, I heard. You guys are in this series through the book of James. So in the first chapter, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death brings forth death. So here in James, there's an internal desire that is from us, that it is flesh, it is flesh-led and worldly. And like bait, it lures us into our own death. So there's an internal desire, but our text is telling us that there's also an external desire, which John also tells us about this external desire. In the first letter of John, we read, do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world itself has desires that are not of God. And the question for us is, can we change the world's desires? And it seems like scripture tells us that we cannot, that what we can change is our own inner desires. Now, for me, when I saw this distinction, it was really helpful because when I came to faith, one of the things that I asked the Lord was, Lord, can you just change the world so that I don't have to deal with sin? Like, can you change the external things that are outside of me so that me can live pretty well? And the prayer request is actually should be upside down. It should be the other way around, according to Scripture. Scripture is actually saying, no, 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 I will change you. I will change your internal desires so that you do not delight or want the external things that the world has to offer. This is what the psalmist says. He says, I will delight myself in the Lord, and he will give me the desires of my heart. Now that's helpful, and maybe it's helpful for you. I don't know what you're walking through. Maybe you came here and you're struggling with some sexual sin, and you're asking the Lord, Lord, change everything out there. And the Lord's not gonna do that. The Lord's gonna change your desires. Maybe you're struggling with some addiction. I, I, I know of a woman who struggles with addiction, and her, one of her prayers is, Lord, remove all the drugs from the world. I mean, you can continue to pray that, I'm not sure it's going to happen because what the Lord wants is to work in your heart. And in working in you, her desires will change. So the first thing that we learn about this enemy is that it's an external enemy. It's, it's outside of us. The Lord wants to change us. And then the second thing that we learn about this enemy is that it is necessary. Did you guys catch that in the text? These temptations are necessary and, uh, uh, like, uh, like, as you read the Bible, you guys remember, like, Peter? Peter's always the guy, like, hey, Jesus, I have a question. Like, I feel like, Peter, this is the right moment to ask, like, Jesus, why is it necessary? Because Jesus just leaves it there. For it is necessary that temptations come. Now, uh, Jesus does not give us a clear reason why they are necessary. But I think according to Scripture, we can think about two reasons why they are necessary. And the first one comes from the uh, first letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote. And in this letter, in this section, Paul, we're going to look at chapter 11, Paul is dealing with some divisions among the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says. He says, um, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul is saying that there must be factions, that the divisions among you must be there. And then he does give us a reason. The reason is so that we can recognize those who are Christians. Actually, temptations allow us to see who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you, have you guys ever met 
that person who's like, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I know the Bible, and then you look at their lives and they're like, no, you cannot love Jesus. You are not following Jesus because everything in their life, their fruit that they're bearing, according to Matthew, will be thrown into the fire. The temptations allow us to see who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at 1 John again. He tells us, he tells the, the people in, 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 in the, the church that he's writing to, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There was something going on in this letter at this time when John wrote it that people left the church and in their leaving, it actually proved that they were not brothers and sisters in Christ. And temptations bring that out. That's the first reason that we might have temptations. It just allows us to see who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's your second reason that I think we can deduce from Scripture. Is that temptations allow us to see where are our loves? Where are our desires? Right? We, we know that Jesus connects obedience and love often. Look at just four passages, right? If you love me, you will obey my commandments, is what Jesus taught his disciples. Or, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And lastly, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. When temptations are there, and we abide, and we follow, and we are obedient, it shows where our loves are at. Listen, to battle, and we're going to talk about this a little later, to battle our sin and our temptation boils down to what do we love? That's what it boils down to. Do we love Jesus? Are we abiding in Jesus, or are we loving the world more? So that's what temptations do. It allows us to see who our brothers and sisters are. It allows us to see where our loves are. So temptations are necessary. They are external. And here's the last thing we can learn that Jesus diagnoses about our enemy, is that this enemy will be judged. This enemy, this enemy that leads us to sin, this enemy that tempts us will be judged. We're told two times, if you read in our passage, woe to the world. And then later on, woe to the one by whom temptations come. So uh, whenever you sort of hear this word woe, it, just tie it back to the Old Testament and the prophets because the woes were coming judgment to the people whom the woe were told to. So we're told that these temptations are going to be judged and they will pass away. It's what we're told in Revelation 21, right? There's not going to be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, because the former things have passed away of which these temptations and sins are part of it. These sins are judged. They're not, they, won't, they won't be there forever. They won't have the upper hand for the Christian. So here, here's a takeaway from this first point that we can have for you and for me. Are we watching our actions? Are we watching our thoughts and our words? Are we tempting others to sin? Are we leading others to sin? Because this woe, look at, if, you're, if, you're, if you have your text, turn just one verse before verse 7 to, to verse 6. 
in Matthew 18. This is what Jesus says the woe is going to be. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. If we are leading others to sin, it is better that we would have a millstone around our neck and be thrown into the sea. And I hope you hear that. The description of the judgment, it is better than the realization of what the judgment is going to be. The judgment is going to be worse. It will be stricter. It will be harsher than the millstone. The millstone is better for us if we are leading others to sin. So are we being the enemy of holiness? Are we leading others to sin? And, and I just pray that we would not be, that we would watch our words, our jokes that we're saying, the lives that we're leading. Is it leading others to sin? So that's the, that's the enemy of holiness. Now the cost of holiness. Um, we read in verse 8, twice, in verse 8 and 9, that it is better it is better, but we're also told what the cost of holiness is, right? Jesus is calling us to some radical holiness, some radical sanctification to tear away whatever is there and throw it away, even if you go into heaven, into the kingdom, limping, crippled, uh, I, I was just talking to uh, uh, to Jeremy earlier, like, I'm almost done with school, and I just feel like I'm just, like, slugging it out, just, like, just get there. I don't care how I get there, like, just crawling, hopping, however I need to. I just see next year, and I don't need a diploma. I just don't want to see homework ever again, okay? I don't, like, I know where, you know, college around here, just, like, however you finish college, as long as you have a C, you get a degree, okay? It doesn't matter, all right? Just slug it out. And that's what Jesus is saying. However you get there, fight. Fight for it. Because it is better. And, and maybe, maybe you guys are saying, like, this is hard. But this is what the Christian life is. And, and brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you that I think as Christians, we become really passive. We've become nonchalant about our sins. We've, we've, dealt, we, we've seen the grace of God so much that we, if Paul were to ask us, hey, should we keep on sinning? I think a lot of us as a, as a body of Christ would say, yeah, let grace abound. And that's not the answer that Paul gave. He said, by no means, by no means. And Paul hated sin. He did violence to sin. And if you think that what I'm using is hyperbolic language, I am not. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 13, in verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or what he told the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or to the Galatians, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Are you killing sin? Are you doing war? against sin. Because if we're not, 
if we're not doing war against sin, sin will eat us. It will throw us away. Do you see the, uh, if you look at the text, if you look at our verses, Jesus is saying we either throw away the things that are leading us to sin, or we get thrown into the hell of fire. It, there's violence either way. We're either doing violence against sin, or sin will do violence against us. Sin is not a pet to be dealt with. We either kill it, or it will kill us. So, so I'm sure you're like, man, this is really hard. And that is true. The, Jesus says uh, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It is hard. But what, um, that's not even my primary argument here. What I'm arguing is that it will cost you. Holiness will cost you something. So here are some things that it will cost you. It will cost you acceptance. Holiness will cost you acceptance. In John 15, we read, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Holiness will cost you acceptance. It will also cost you your relationships. In Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Your love for Jesus will cost you relationships. And are you willing to pay that for the sake of loving and abiding in Jesus and walking in holiness? It will also cost you security. Second Timothy chapter 3, indeed... That's a promise. Indeed, you guys all, we all love the promises of God, right? Look at this promise of God. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be, you think it would say like, will be blessed, will rejoice, will be persecuted. Do you hear that, church? If you desire a godly life, you will be Persecuted is what the Bible says. And then lastly, it will cost you respect. It's like 1 Peter chapter 4, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You know what Peter says? When those, the Gentiles, when the non-believing world sees that you don't join their drinking parties, their orgies, their lawless idolatry, they're surprised, <laughs> is what Peter says. Like, wait a minute. You don't want to join us in this revelry? You don't want to join us in this sin party? Why wouldn't you? But they doesn't stay there. They're not only surprised, it says that they will malign you. Holiness will cost you respect, security, relationships, and acceptance. Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to do war 
to walk in holiness and grow in sanctification. Now, what would make us do this? And here is the last thing that we'll talk about holiness, is the reward of holiness. What would make us want to fight such a great and hard war? I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis is saying there are great promises out there, the vacation on a holiday, and we are settling for mud pies like little ignorant children. We are willing to pay the cost of holiness when we set the reward in front of us. So what is this reward? Jesus has already said earlier when we talked about judgment that it is better for the millstone to be put around our necks and to be thrown into the water. But here he twice says it is better. It is better to enter into life, to enter into communion, relationship with him, to partake of all the blessings that he has for us. So I'm sure that when we read this text, what we read is, man, there's hell. There is an eternal hell of fire. But I think we're, if we would, if that's the only thing that we get of that, we have just missed the point. Jesus is actually calling us. He is beckoning us to something better. He is longing for you to cut off whatever it is that is choking you so that you would enter what he has for you. Sometimes we think about God in such a negative way, like he has hid something from us, like he is denying us something, but he's actually calling us to a greater thing. He is calling us to the better thing. And it is us who settle for the inferior desires. It is us who settle for the inferior things that the world has to offer. So how do we fight? How do we strive and pay the cost to holiness? Well, we set our affections on that which is better. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your temptations are. But I do know, according, into, according to the authority of Scripture, that if you set, you and I set our affections on a greater reward, on a greater love, then Jesus wins out and sin dies out. And this isn't, I did it one day. This is a costly, costly thing that we do every day. We set our gaze on our Lord Jesus and the Bible promises that from one degree of glory, we will be transformed So the prayer is, Lord Jesus, will you give me eyes to see your majesty, the eyes to see your beauty for who you are so that my affections and my will 
would want to strive for something better and not settle for the things of this world. So I'll close with just two exhortations. If you're a visitor here and you are not a believer, the first thing that Jesus wants you to know is that he has something better for you. He has something better for you. He, he, he says, I have come so that I may give you life and give it abundantly. Jesus did not come and bear our sins and die on the cross and resurrect and ascend for something inferior. He came to do the work to give you something more abundant and better. He loves and cares for you. Will you believe in who he is? But secondly, I, I would I would do you an injustice if you are not a believer here and you didn't hear not only that there is this extended invitation for the better, but there's also an extended warning that hell is real, that judgment is real, and you will be thrown into such judgment if you continue to live in unrepentant sin. Both of those things are there at your grasp. Will you settle for the inferior judgment? Will you let sin throw you into hell? Or will you seek that which is better and throw away the sin? And then for the brothers and sisters who are here, I just close. My prayer for you and for me is that we would recognize that to walk and there's, man, these three verses are so packed because do you, like, I didn't even mention, but did you see the distinction? Those who enter into the kingdom, how do they enter? They walk. They are joyfully walking into the kingdom. While those who are judged are thrown. There's violence done to them. Brothers and sisters, will we walk? Walk into the blessing and joy that the Lord has for us, knowing that what is set before us is so much better than what the world has set before us. Will we delight in the Lord, trusting that he is better than delighting ourselves in anything that this world has to offer? I pray that the Lord would give us those affections today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, sin and temptation is real. And it, uh, it beckons us day by day to, to fall into it, whether that's anger, whether that is sexual sin, whether that's lying, whether that is gossip, whatever it is that tempts us, Lord, it is there. It is present and outside of us. Lord, and I ask that you would just change our desires, that we would set our affections on you and delight on you and our desires, internal desires would change. Lord, and I, and I pray that as a church, as a body of people, we would count the cost of holiness and say that if we are not accepted, if we are maligned, if there is no security, that that is far better, that it is far better to, pay that cost and count that cost than to lose what you have for us.